We are up to chapter 1, Mishnah 10 of Pertiavos, and I'll read it. Shemaya v'avtalion kiblu mehem. Again, we are in the era before the common era. It's about 200 years or so before the common era. The leaders of the Jewish people are a team of the head of the Sanhedrin and the Nasi, the president. And this is the fourth grouping. Their names are Shemaya and Avtalion, and they are the students of the previous Yehudim and Tabai and Shem and they each taught one Mishnah. And the first one is Shemaya Omer. Shemaya says, Ehov es hamalacha, love work, usino es harabanos, and hate the rabbanos. Rabbanos literally means the rabbinate. Hate the rabbis. No, that's not what it means. But it means hate lordiness, hate lording over others. Va'al tisvada l'rashus. And don't become too chummy chummy, too familiar with the politicians, with the governments. A very interesting collection of lessons here. To love the work, to hate the lordiness, and don't become too familiar with the government. So what's going on over here? So first of all, these Shmaya and Avtalion, these two leaders of the Jewish people, we're not told a lot about them. What we do know is that the next the next set of leaders of the Jewish people are very famous. They're Hillel and Shammai, very famous individuals. And they were students of Shemai and Aftalion. The one thing we are told about them is that they were converts. Not only that, they were descendants of one of the most evil villains of Jewish history. And that was Sancheirev. Uh, the first temple era, during the first temple era, there was a mighty empire called the Assyrian Empire. And at one point, their king was some of the name of Sancheirev. And they came from Iraq and Assyria, and they were expanding their empire. And the at the time, the Jewish people were split. There was a schism. There was a northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So they had come from the north, Sancheirev, with his army of hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and they had systematically destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And the, the descriptions of their brutality and cruelty are somewhat uh, maybe too macabre uh, for even telling over. Like they would flay and stand their opponents, their enemies alive. Like they were very brutal, very cruel. And they essentially captured the entire northern kingdom of Israel. And their policy was whenever they capture a, a people and they conquer a land, they want to subdue the local population, the indigenous population, and the way to do that is by their theory was to actually rotate, to take a nation and to displace them and, pace, and place them elsewhere. Conquer two people and then you take those people and you swap them. You mix up everyone's in a different neighborhood. No one feels comfortable and they're less likely to rebel. So if you've ever heard the term the 10 lost tribes of Israel, that refers to the 10 northern tribes who were conquered and displaced by Sancheirib, and his Assyrian army. Jacob has 12 sons that they comprise essentially the 12 tribes of Israel. And when they, during the Exodus and during the 40 years of the Torah where Moshe is still around presiding over the nation, they're each living in a different location in the camp. They're all, each tribe is, is separate from the other tribes. And when they enter Israel, they enter together, of course, but when they conquer and settle the land, each tribe is a portion of a certain part of the land of Israel. And for a great amount of time, in fact, the tribes didn't intermarry with each other. 
The reason being, if you marry your daughter after someone from the other tribe, and what happens if you die, your daughter gets an inheritance, and therefore that goes to her family and her husband and their children, and thus your tribe's land is going to be invaded by some other tribe. Of course, it's one nation, but it's one nation that's broken down to tribes that each get a certain their portion of a certain part of the land, and therefore, for a long time, they refuse to allow daughters of their own tribe to marry men from other tribes. And uh, so there was inter-tribal hostility between the Nelan. Hostility maybe is too strong, but there was friction. And the northern tribes, in fact, were alienated by the new king of, of what was then a unified Israel or land of Israel. After Sol- Solomon presided over an entirely unified kingdom. But then when he died, his son Rehavam, he made some critical missteps and he caused alienation. He did heavy taxation uh, because there was a problem. You know, the, the, the Jerusalem was the center of the, of the Jewish world. It was the religious, it was the political center of the nation. And the people who lived far away, primarily the tribes all the way in the north, they felt a little bit out of the loop and they felt disenfranchised. And the king had two sets of advisors. There was the younger whippersnapper advisors. They were saying, no, you have to subjugate them. They have to know who's boss. And you have to have very harsh taxes that they should know that you're in charge. That was what the younger advisors told Rechavim. And the older advisor says, no, you have to court them. You have to woo them. You have to make them feel like they're part of you. Don't go very harsh in your taxation. Rechavim, unfortunately, chose to listen to the younger advisors, and therefore deepened the division and the alienation of the northern tribes that eventually they seceded and they call, they started their own country, the kingdom of Israel versus the kingdom of Judah. And that remained so for hundreds of years. And the northern kingdom of Israel descended into idolatry. And they their first king was someone by the name of Yeravam ben Jerobam. And he was a man of great potential. He could have been up there with King David had he reconciled, but he didn't. For example, three times a year, there's a pilgrimage. All the Jewish people are supposed to go to to Jerusalem, to the temple, bring sacrifices, and ha- to have a, a festival of unity amongst the nation. And Yeravam, Jeroboam, the king of the northern tribes of Israel, he was worried that what's going to be, the Jewish people are going to go, his constituents are going to go down south, and this is going to evoke a a nostalgic feeling of unity, and they're going to say, we're done with the secession. So he put his sentries along the road and says, sorry, you can't go You can't go to the temple. I'll build, I'll build you a temple. And he builds him a temple for the idols. And thus, it really hastens their demise because they forget about God and they go the ways of, of the idolatry. And even though they have great prophets like Elijah and Elisha who are trying, investing everything they can, to bring those people back into the fold, it doesn't work. And therefore, they are spiritually vulnerable, comes along Sancheirv and the Assyrians, and they attack from the north. They slaughter many, many, many Jews. The, the rest of the Jews, they send them in chains elsewhere. Ten lost tribes are lost. And in their place, they put the Samaritans, which are going to be a cause of much conflict with the remaining Jews in the land for the next several centuries. So these ten lost tribes of Israel are lost, and the fact that Talmud even has the debate 
whether or not during the times of Messiah, these tribes are going to come back or not. And there's been many, many alleged sightings of them in various places in Africa, in India, and in Nepal, and Tibet, all these places where you have these people, they call themselves the Bnei Moshe, the Bnei Menashe, all these tribes that have a lot of customs of the Jewish people, but we don't know if they are or if they're not, what the deal is, and whether or not they, if they, if they want to come back to the nation, they probably need to convert because there's been such a gap between the times where they alleged, allegedly were Jewish and then when they have come back into the fold, and therefore we don't know uh, how legitimate their claim of Jewish ancestry is. It's interesting, like the Ethiopians, the Ethiopian Jews, these are not part of the Ten Lost Tribes. These are people who left the Jewish nation afterwards, probably during the time of the first temple being destroyed. So about a hundred and so years after Sancheirb and the Assyrians come. And it's interesting, when they came to Israel, they didn't have, for example, the holiday of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, of course, is a holiday that happened in the Second Temple era. And therefore, the Ethiopian Jews, they were severed from the nation for a long time. And therefore, during the time when Hanukkah was instituted amongst the nation, they were already departed, they already departed from the nation. Uh, but they are not from the Ten Lost Tribes. They, they left afterwards, subsequently. Now, so this, so this Sancheirev, he's up there with Antiochus and Titus and, and uh, Stalin and Hitler as, as, and uh, Chmelnitsky as one, one of the great villains of Jewish history. I, in our history, we have the Hamans and the Amalites of the world, these people who really stand out for their mistreatment of the Jewish people. Amongst them, you have Sancheirev and his great-great-great-grandchildren, they convert. Not only do they become Jews who are accepted, they become Jews who reach the absolute pinnacle of the Jewish world. And in fact, the Talmud points out that the grandchildren of Sancheirev, they taught Torah publicly, and who are they? These are Shemayin of Talion. And the grandchildren of Haman, they also taught Torah publicly. And there's other sources that talk about the Emperor Nero, his nephew famously is Unculus, the Descendants of Titus, they also became Jews. So there's this idea that out of the depths of evil, out of the the worst kinds of people, there could be good that comes out from them. This demonstrates, certainly, that we, we're a meritocracy. Someone who's an outsider, we, we judge them as individuals. We don't judge children based upon their and the actions of their parents. And we say we're chosen people, we're chosen because of a responsibility and a mandate to be God's emissaries and God's ambassadors in the world. And therefore, if someone says they want to join and they want to play a part in this effort to bring the Jewish people to their and the world really to its destiny, someone like that is welcome aboard, no matter, regardless of what kind of pedigree they have. So it's just an interesting little historical nugget is that these two people who both Together, were the leaders of the people, the leaders of the nation, the unquestioned authorities over the people, they indeed, and everyone knew this, they were descendants of the evil Sancheirev. So what do they teach us? Three things. Love work, hate, lordiness, and don't become too familiar with governments. Let's go through these things one by one. So the first thing we're told is you have to love work. The Talmud tells us that there's nothing more wonderful than someone who works hard and is able to consume from their own 
handiwork. If someone has an honest living, then they can live a good life. Whereas someone who doesn't have make an honest living, they are likely to resort to a dishonest living, to theft, to crime. And therefore, the mission is telling us, it's like, love work. And the Talmud even describes someone who says, well, this work is beneath me. I'm not going to do this work. This work is, I'm too talented for this, or this is below me. The Talmud says, no, even if someone, if, if that's where life brings them to, they have to take on a menial job or a job that doesn't, you know, their friends are all lawyers and accountants and physicians, and they have to be, I don't know, their attendants, uh, their greeters at Walmart. If that's your job, and that's how, that's the life that you're living, you're able to make an honest living and, and, and feed your family and, and do what's right, you should take pride in that because that's what you're doing, what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to love the work no matter what the work is. doesn't mean you should not try to look for upward mobility. Of course, you should. You should try to make the most of your opportunities, of course. But don't despise work because any work is better than non-work. And the commentaries also present a different angle. What happens if someone does not work? Well, if they're not work, they're going to be bored. And boredom is always presented as a segue to sin. Part of our effort in life is to avoid sin. Maybe our primary effort is to avoid forgetting about God. And one of the tactics that we use to not sin is to be busy. And even if you're busy with work, Work is not necessarily a mitzvah. It's something that you, that everyone does. It's not a reserve for the Jewish people. It's, not a, it's a good thing. You should love it. But is it a mitzvah? No. But it is a mitzvah in its capacity of making sure that you're too busy to sin. And someone who doesn't work, there is a great likelihood that that void will be filled by something that's not only neutral, but something that's bad and negative. There's also a concern of decay. You know, if someone doesn't work... Their aging actually intensifies, it accelerates. I see people who full of life and vibrant when they're working, they retire and they're doing nothing and suddenly they, they get old really fast, which is unfortunate. Even if you're retired, you should be working on something, have a project. Don't, don't, don't just have empty days and empty weeks. There's 2,711 pages of Talmud. There's a plenty of work for the rest of your life and multiple lifetimes. So here are just, just general ideas about how valuable it is to be working. And uh, the Maharal adds, what if you were a great Torah scholar? And they're studying Torah. Well, there's two ways to study Torah. You can study Torah and say you're doing just that. But there's another way for someone to study Torah to have a business on the side, to, to do some work on the side. And he adds another interesting idea. He says if someone is self-sufficient, then actually their Torah and their inspiration, their teachings to be more influential because they're not beholden to their to their master, so to speak. If someone is a rabbi and they have membership, for example, they're always going to be limited in how much influence they can have because they don't want to ruffle too many feathers or else they get fired. And there's been many stories in history of rabbis who said things that wrinkled some of their members and they were fired. And therefore, they have to kind of tread carefully because they have overlords. Whereas if someone is a great rabbi, but also has their own independent source of livelihood, then their ability to influence as a rabbi actually increases. The Rambam, he always writes about how important it is for someone to make a living and to not rely on the public coffers. And he himself, he was a physician. One of the greatest rabbis of all time, Arguably the most influential 
individual and even arguably the most influential Jew of the last millennium, he was someone who had a full-time job. And he himself, in, in one of his letters, he describes his what his day looks like. And he was the personal physician for the Sultan Saladin in Cairo, in Egypt, who had a huge harem full of women and children. And all day, the Rambam, he describes this in his letter, he goes there early in the morning and has to deal with all these patients. And then he gets, gets back to the Jewish community and all the Jewish patients are there. And then everyone's there asking questions and he hasn't eaten since the morning. And he's famished. And then he gets the Torah questions. And he himself wants to study, right? He writes these incredible books that each one of his projects would have, on its own, would have granted him a place in immortality to codify all of Jewish law, to be the first one to write a commentary on all of Mishnah, uh, to write The Guide to the Perplex, a very influential book on Jewish philosophy. Somehow the Rama managed to do all of that while holding a full-time job. But he himself writes that it's it's actually a beneficial beneficial for a Torah scholar to have some sort of side gig. And it actually increases their ability to have their impact as a rabbi. By the way, this is a, a source of much, much controversy. The Rambam's position, because others argue. And others tell him, yeah, Rambam, of course, you're once in a millennia individual. And you cannot hold everyone else to the same standard. And if everyone else tries to juggle full-time work with full-time Torah greatness, they're probably not going to succeed. And therefore, maybe it's not fair for the Rambam to say, well, I did it, you could do it too. And in fact, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, one of the other great figures of Jewish history, he writes that if everyone followed the Rambam, Torah would have been forgotten. Because how many Rambams are there in our history? Not many. But that's a side point. But the, the lesson is certainly true that there is a benefit of someone having a job and that's valuable and loving it no matter what. Even if it's not as prestigious, it doesn't matter. You should be happy with what you're doing and you should be proud of it. Next thing in the Mishnah is to hate lordiness. So the Ram tells us here that being a leader, being someone with responsibility and with, with authority over others, it causes all kinds of problems and challenges for you, for the leader. And he says, interestingly, that the most dangerous aspect of being an authority figure is that you could potentially lose your faith in God. How so? A, a leader is someone, of course, who has decision-making co- Capacity. They have to call the shots. They have an authoritarian role. But the truth is, the world has only one authority, and that's God. And if someone is seeking authority, it's essentially an act that states, I too should have some say in how other people behave. And that in itself, so there's a very deep point here, that that in itself, the, the act of seeking authority over others is in itself an act that can cause a lack of faith. Maral points out here another point, that a leader has the responsibility of the constituents. A leader is responsible for their constituents. And thus, every misdeed and misstep and sin of their constituents actually accrues to the leader. And therefore, we don't believe that a leader is someone who gets on a pedestal and starts pontificating. That's not the Jewish leader. Jewish leader is someone who is involved intimately with the needs of their people. 
And therefore, you should know what you're getting, what you're signing up for. If you're signing up to be a Jewish leader, it means you're signing up to be in there in the trenches with your people, and their spiritual stature is a reflection of yours, which is a little bit of a scary thought. Now, Rashi quotes an interesting Talmud about the danger of being a leader and why maybe you should avert it. The Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, on page 55a, three things shorten the days and the years of a person. Number one, someone who is given a Torah scroll but he refused to read it. Number two, someone who gives him, gives him the opportunity to say a blessing and they, they refuse. And someone who treats himself with lordiness over others. And it says that if someone is given a Torah and they don't read it, well, the Torah the quotes the verse in Deuteronomy, the Torah is your life. So if someone's given an opportunity to embrace life and they reject it, okay, you don't want life, you'll have a shorter life, number one. Number two quotes the verse in Genesis, those who bless you will be blessed. If someone has an opportunity to bless and they don't bless, well, then they're not blessed. If they're not blessed, they may die young. And finally, someone who treats themselves as a leader, and what source does they give to that? And it quotes the verse in the beginning of Exodus, that Joseph died and then his brothers died. And of course, Joseph was the second youngest of Jacob's 12 sons. So you would imagine that he would live longer than most of his brothers. But the Torah tells us that he died first and only then his brothers died. Ask the Talmud, why did Joseph die before his brothers? Because he was the king. He was the leader. And leaders have short lives. And this is an interesting idea. What does this mean that leaders have short have short lives. So I saw an interesting explanation that a leader is someone who is not part of the group. They're the leader. They're above the group. And therefore, on a spiritual level, they are viewed independent of the populace. And in Jewish philosophy, we always believe that there is safety and there's protection in the crowds. The nation, when the nation, you want to be judged as part of the nation, not as an individual. Because as an individual, you could be scrutinized and you could, there could be problems found in your conduct. But as a nation, collectively, we're a righteous nation. And our objective, for example, on the, on the, the whole thrust of the holidays is how do we join up together as a nation and make sure that we ourselves are a link in that chain? Because once you're a link, you're part of a grander nation, the nation we know will survive this year. That's for sure. It's been promised. The nation will always survive. Whereas individuals, who knows? The more work that you invest to make sure that you are contributing to the nation, you're part of feeling as one of the collective whole, the more likely you are to survive. Someone who is a king, someone who is a leader, someone who is an authority, someone who is saying, okay, you're the nation. I'm different. I'm designated by myself. I'm in charge of you. And by doing that, they're inadvertently shortening their lives because they're going to be judged as individuals or they're more likely to be judged as individuals and therefore more likely to have a short life. An interesting, an interesting idea. Finally, the mission concludes, don't be too close with the politicians. I get two interesting explanations that seem to go very well with the previous ones. So the Ram says, if you become a leader, you're going to lose faith in God. Says the Rambam, that same would apply if you become too close with the politicians. If you already have a benefactor, you're close to the mayor and you, you're close to all the city councilmen and you're good friends with the senators and, you, you, right? and you're a big donor to the people in power, 
you feel impervious. You're safe. You don't have to worry. You already have high friends in high places. What do you need God for? And says the Ram, in a, in a weird way, you're going to embrace the political leaders of the people, but by doing that, you're likely, you're liable to lose faith in God. And the Rabbi Yona, he presents it in a little bit of a different way. He says, well, the second you embrace the human ruler and you accord honor and respect and stature to the politician, what are you in effect showing? You're saying, well, they have a say. There's a verse that says, Lev Hashem. The heart of the kings and the ministers are really in the hands of God. We really believe that God is manipulating the world, not Trump or Obama or who or the United Nations. Of course, you know, they're they're the implements of God. But ultimately, what's going to happen to the world? We believe that God's in control. When you accord so much value to the human part of controlling the world, you lose a little bit of the sensitivity to the fact that God is really in, in charge. There's another mission later on that talks about the nature of politicians, that they're just in it for themselves, and they're just going to use you, and when you help their agenda, then you're valuable to them, but when you're really in the need, you're in the rut, they'll just discard you. That's a mission we'll see actually a little bit later on. I want to end with an amazing idea from the Ruach Chaim, from the Reb Chaim Belajner. What he does in this Mishnah, he takes the first two central claims of the Mishnah, love work, but hate lordiness, and he actually describes them as two different aspects of leadership. There's two aspects of leadership, one called work and one called lordiness. And the work, he's talking, of course, to the spiritual leaders, the, well, what's the work? The work is the teaching, it's the inspiring, it's guiding the people and how they ought to behave, it's reaching out to those in need, it's visiting the sick. Like, that's the actual hard work of the rabbi. But then there's the other aspect, and that you should embrace, that you, you should love. There's the other aspect, where that's the lordiness. That's the one people, they call you rabbi, and they give you honor and respect, and they look up to you, and they respect you, and they, right, there's all the accolades that come from being someone in a position of leadership. Says the Ruach, what the Mishnah is actually telling us is, is that you should embrace leadership, but embrace the toil of leadership, the hard work of leadership, the actual sweat, blood, and tears that you have to invest as a leader, that part you should embrace, but all the fringe benefits, all the accolades, all the benefits that come with being a leader, that you should shun. And I think it's interesting. We just, in, in the Torah, we read about Moshe. Moshe, of course, is the paragon, is the paradigm, is the archetype of, of a great leader. And we see that he has the love of one part of leadership and the absolute disdain for the other part. So the first story we're told about Moshe, he grows up in chapter 2 of Exodus, and he goes and looks out for the people, and he sees their suffering. The first thing we're told about Moshe as an adult is that he sees the suffering of the people, of his brethren. And it impacts him, it moves him. He feels their pain. And we're told in the Midrash that he sees people doing this backbreaking labor of, of bricks and brickling, and he goes and tries to help them as much as he can. He's invested in the plight of the nation. And the next thing we're told, he sees an Egyptian man striking a Jewish man. And he takes action, even though it's at, potentially, and as we see it actually plays out, at great personal harm and personal loss. 
he has a disdain for evil and he acts upon it. That is part of the toil of leadership. It's the actual hard work. And he has to flee. He flees and he ends up by the well and he sees a group of young girls being harassed by a bunch of shepherds. What does he do? He intervenes. He, he This is, we see someone has a leadership qualities to them. He intervenes and sticks up for those who are vulnerable. Those who could potentially be harmed. And, of course, he end up, ends up marrying one of those girls as well. He becomes a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd to- tends to the needs of the flock. So we see Moshe is excelling in this one aspect of leadership. And you would imagine if you just saw that, you'd say, well, he's a great candidate. He's a great candidate to be the leader of the people. And then he has the episode of the burning bush. And God appears to him and God says, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to save the people. And we imagine our prototype of the leader is someone who has the resolve and someone who accepts upon themselves the responsibility of, the, uh, of, of leadership. And what does Moshe do? Moshe rejects it. Moshe is not interested. What leaders do we know today that don't want the role? And the entire partial, end of the partial last week, this past week that we read, partial Shmos, Moshe is raising all kinds of objections as to why he's not a good fit for, for the role. He is not going to be the one at the helm of the nation. And we're told in the Midrash that it's actually seven days of negotiations. So the first objection Moshe raises is, well, what, what do I tell the people? What if they don't listen to me? What if they don't believe me? They'll say I'm a charlatan. They'll say I'm a fraud. Finally, he says, well, what if Pharaoh doesn't listen to me? What do I tell Pharaoh? What if, how do I prove it? He'll say, God never sent you. And then finally, he points to his own flaws as a leader. I'm not a person of words. I can't speak. I'm not very glib. How could I be the leader? Finally, he says, send Aaron instead. All these objections, the Torah goes through them one by one. And that, in effect, what we're saying in our Mishnah is that that's not showing Moshe's faults as a leader. That's actually enhancing his leadership claim. Because a great leader is someone who wants to do the hard work of leadership, but doesn't want the glory and the responsibility and the being at the helm. They want to be behind the scenes. And this is, I think, the characteristic of that really typifies Moshe's life. He's the most humble of men. Regardless of which side of the political divide you are, we could all agree that the political leaders that we have today are not the most humble of men. They're not. Some things the po- both sides of the political divide could agree upon. And Moshe here is presented as the paragon of all leaders and the most humble of men. Because that is what the mission is describing. The Jewish leader is someone who is both the greatest leader, so invested in the needs of, of their people, and wanting to do all that hard work, but not wanting any of the glory. And that, those two together actually create the great leader that should, should be worthy of leading the nation. And what's that compared? That's the first two parts of the mission. Love the work. And hate the lordiness. And then it says, be very wary, be very leery, be very suspect of the politicians. Because the politicians, they portray themselves as being great leaders, but in effect, they hate the work and they love the lordiness. They're the exact opposite of the leader that we're trying, that we're told to become. Become the leader of someone who loves the work and loves the investment in the nation and the people and the underlings and the constituents but doesn't want all the glory and be very wary of someone who is the exact opposite. And it's interesting. There's many examples of this in Moshe's life. But the when Moshe is about to die in, in the book of Numbers, Moshe says to God, 
May Hashem, God of all living souls, appoint a man over the community. The, the thing that Moshe is worried about as he's about to die is not his legacy. They always say about the, the president. The first term is about getting reelected. The second term is about developing your legacy. None of it have anything to do with the benefits of the 350 million people. It's all about what's, what do you gain? What do you gain for this? First term, I want to get reelected. Second term, I want to build a legacy. I can have a nice museum, a nice library, and a nice, uh, maybe they could etch my face into the, uh, into North Dakota or wherever it is, Mount Rushmore. That's what it's about. What about the people? That's an afterthought. What is Moshe? What happens when Moshe is about to die? He tells God, I want a, I want a successor. Who's going to lead the people in, in my stead? And Rashi points out two lessons from this. Moshe is brought to God saying, this informs us of the praise of the righteous. When they are about to die, they set aside their personal matters and occupy themselves with the needs of the community. Moshe asked God, tell me if you're going to appoint them a leader. What is the concern of Moshe, the prototype of, of the great leader that we're trying, we're told here to model ourselves after? His concerns are solely that of his people, not of himself and his role as leader. And what does he tell God? God of all living souls. It's a very strange name to apply to God in this context. Says Rashi, why is this written? Why is, why is Moshe saying, God of all living souls, appoint my successor? So Moshe says before God, you know, you're the God of all living souls. You know the unique idiosyncrasies of each individual. Everyone's different. You're the God of all living souls. Appoint for them a leader who will be able to bear each individual according to his personality. The leader is someone who has to suffer the most because they have to harbor the unique craziness of each one of their constituents. And that is what it means. That, that's the work. And Moshe is saying what we need as a leader for the Jewish people is someone who is able to suffer Suffer as a, as a leader, your job is to suffer and bear the responsibility of each one of your constituents. But not only that, not suffer generally, suffer in particular. Each one, each living soul is different and each each underling, each constituent of the great leader causes a different aspect of the leader's suffering and bearing. And that is indeed the prototype of a great Jewish leader. Thus, our mission teaches us, according to this, a very important insight. There's two aspects and two elements of leadership. One of them is the work. It's the hard work. It's the blood, sweat, and, to- and toil that a leader has to invest, the suffering with each and every individual that you have to love, that you have to embrace. That's actual leadership in the trenches. The other aspect of it, when you are presented as some grandiose leader and you get to give the big speeches and you get all the accolades and everyone gives you honor, that you should shun. By doing that, we could hopefully ourselves become great Jewish leaders in our own right. And as well, be very careful of the politicians who are literally the exact opposite of that.